Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is our long-promised episode on modern monetary theory, or MMT. Uh, that's what we're going to refer to it as henceforth. And um, listeners will maybe know that we had a critique of MMT. I think back at the beginning of uh, 2019, we had Doug Henwood on, who had written a piece taking down MMT, and we interviewed him about it. And uh, we promised an episode which would be pro-MMT and this is it here. So this is an opportunity to talk to one of the main proponents of MMT. But before we get to that, I think it's probably worth uh, recalling a little bit what the critique was and also why why I guess this is an, an apposite moment to be talking about, about MMT, about a school of economic thought that uh, proposes you can do as much fiscal spending as you want. I mean, at least that's often how it's caricatured. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to have Bill Mitchell on, and in particular because uh, not only because we've had um, Doug Henwood on before, um, as well as one of Bill's um, colleagues and collaborators, Thomas Fatsy, who's also a leading proponent of MMT, albeit perhaps um, for, uh, more rooted in political science rather than economics. Um, it's interesting to hear because it seems that a lot of the claims of um, MMT and their heterodox position. So criticizing the economics discipline um, for its failures, it would seem to be vindicated in the current moment. And um, this is at least partly why it's receiving the boost that it is, um, uh, why it's being talked about, why it's drawing interest, controversy, why there's more argumentation around it is because that all the fr- all the frameworks that have governed policy and um, that have the conventions that have governed the way in which economics is taught and in universities and talked about in the mainstream press and the financial press, they all seem to be crumbling. Um, and in particular, you know, there's been if you look at say what the international financial institutions are encouraging um, Western economies to spend more on infrastructure, public spending, in order to um, in order to get out of the um, in order to try and get out of the slump that Western economies are currently in, or at least that they have been in for the last um, ten years or so since the crash. So all of this is it makes it a very opportune moment to be talking to to be talking about MMT, um, and to be talking about uh, its leading living proponent as well. Yeah, I think. Um two points here i think it's definitely an an apposite time to be to be overdue even to have this episode on on mmt the first is that in the british context at least it's it's quite clear that the the conservative government are going to break decisively arguably already have with with the period of austerity and there's going to be um i guess there's going to be in some ways a repoliticization of the economy some questions around spending around what the, the the state's role is and that obviously might not lead straight to um to mmt but it's you know it's a, it's a good time to be discussing that and then in in the american context as well you know we have we have um aoc talking about the power of the purse um and you, you never know what's going to happen in in american politics in in 2020 but <clears throat> it seems quite possible that there could be a real opportunity for proponents of mmt to make to make their case and to to Im, to influence um, influence the direction, I guess, of of, um, of of state spending and of fiscal policy more generally. Yeah, I mean, one thing about the the MMT debate specifically is also, I mean, just the rancor that's involved in it. I mean, I don't know if you guys or listeners have really caught wind of this. I don't know how much exactly there's been in 
the kind of mainstream media. But whenever you do find kind of pro and con sort of arguments about MMT or for that matter on Twitter, it's amazingly rancorous and like you know you don't obviously it's one of those where you don't even want to take sides because why can't <laughs> you don't why can't people it. be <laughs> why can't people be more civil just social moderation yeah you know well, be be a bit more in the middle about things is that what you're saying that's not what i'm saying at all but uh but it, it's just interesting what for, for those who don't really understand uh exactly what the stakes are or understand why it's become so personalized and i guess that's the thing about mm-hmm. it um you know we had doug henwood on he makes some interesting points about mmt he also makes some other ones which i which are i guess if not personalized at least kind of take aim at the kind of the, the character of the proponents of the debate you know like what how they how they make their argument rather than what the content of their argument um and then mmt's react to that very defensively and angrily um and so you know you have one side saying that, oh, the MMTers are cultish, and then the MMTers responding saying uh, the anti-MMT people are, you know, dogmatic and uh, and even conservative. You know, actually, in fact, they both accuse each other of, of conservatism. If we, if we call back to what Doug Henwood said, you know, he says that, you know, basically the MMTers don't want to take on the rich because they are not willing to tax them. They just want to, you know, do key, create money out of keystrokes to fund spending without actually ever taking on the rich through taxing. And then the MMTers respond, well, actually, you know, class war isn't only fought through taxation. In fact, we can ignore the rich and go about and, uh, for example, raise the floor on wages uh, and have more jobs, which will actually challenge, uh, you know, the richest class power much more than just trying to tax them, which is always difficult. Um, So it's Mm. interesting that kind of both sides accuse the other of not of being insufficiently radical or unwilling to take on uh, take on the rich or engage in class warfare or whatever yeah no yeah i it, i think it's um you definitely see the, the the passions being being inflamed on this but i think yeah i mean that's that's not surprising given the you know the the massive financial or the massive economic stakes that potentially um are involved if you had an mmt um inflected policy either of the right or the left i think what we're going to try to do here um as uh, we've already mentioned we have bill mitchell on i'm going to introduce him in a second um uh, but it's tried to give an uh, an accessible introduction into it and kind of talk it through uh we leave it to you listeners uh to make your mind up about it uh have a listen also to the episode with a where we've done the critique of mmt um we're ourselves not uh we haven't made our minds up on the matter um but hopefully we can uh, kind of host the debate here right so here's us talking to bill mitchell who's professor of economics at the university of newcastle professor of political economy at the university of helsinki and the author of several books including reclaiming the state which he wrote with thomas fatsy uh and we had thomas on discussing that book about uh on the podcast about two years ago uh, so that's another one that's worth going back and and checking out uh as well as the critique of mmt with doug henwood anyway here is us talking to bill mitchell so first of all uh we're going to ask him a very unfair question which is what is mmt if you could give us it in a one sentence summary and don't worry listeners we're going to go into more depth <laughs> shortly after but if you could give us a one sentence summary of what is mmt bill well mmt is a, a framework and uh, uh it's an economic macroeconomic framework so it studies the big aggregates and uh it allows us to see more clearly i call it a lens similar to a pair of spectacles that allow people to see better. And it's a 
a framework or a lens for understanding the way in which the monetary system actually operates and for understanding the capacities of the currency issuer at the central centre of that monetary system, the government in other words. And uh, the, the important point is that that lens is, uh, is rather and, and we can we push this a bit. It's uh, rather apolitical in terms of standard left or right uh, classifications, in the sense that a person on the extreme right could have exactly the same understanding as a person such as I, who's on the left of the political spectrum. And what that means is that uh, when people say, "Oh, won't it be great if we have MMT?" or won't it be terrible if we have MMT? They're really missing the point that MMT is what is and uh, it's not not a regime you shift to or shift away from. Mm. And to make sense of that comment, you need to understand that there really are no MMT policies to operationalise that understanding and that uh, theoretical framework. You need to uh, superimpose your values, your ideology over it. And so I would have, uh, with the same understanding as a, a right-wing set of values, I would have a totally different set of policies than the right-wing person. Excellent. So um, I think maybe to develop this a little bit further, uh, you've sketched out how what it looks like a, as a macroeconomic framework and how it's apolitical. Um, would you be able to spell out what are what is MMT's central ideas? You know, maybe three main kind of building blocks of MMT or however many you choose. But um, to kind of give us a, a picture, especially for those who aren't too familiar with the economic debates, what uh, what the sort of framework consists of, what it's mostly concerned with. Well, if we if we start off and understand the concept of a currency issuer, so most national governments around the world are currency issuers. Uh, we exclude the 19 member states of the European Union, which are uh, currency users. They use a foreign currency, so. MMT focuses initially on how currency enters the economy uh, and the way in which the government essentially is able to provision itself with real goods and services from the non-government sector, that's households and firms, etc., to provision itself to run the programs that it holds out as part of its agenda. And... um, what we under so when we think about that provisioning process, we understand that uh, the, the 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 seemingly worthless currency, because we're now the modern bit in modern monetary theory is about the uh, is post nineteen seventy one, uh, and that's an important date because that's when the convertibility of current of US dollars into gold was abandoned and um, mm. what that means is there's no there's no hard commodity anymore no uh, valuable commodity backing any currency and um, what that means is that the, the currencies are worthless piece, tokens digital right. tokens or, or actual tokens and uh, in that context what what why would we want to use that worthless 
currency and transfer our productive resources into the public sector so that it can do provide public programs, etc. And the answer is that um, is that the government imposes a tax liability. And uh, then when you think about that, how do we actually get the currency that the government issues uniquely as a monopolist? It's the only source of that currency uh, to us. And uh, so that tax liability uh, creates an incentive for us to then provide our labour and our other productive resources to the government in return for government spending. And if you then think about that, it means that really the government spending comes before the tax taxes can be paid. Right. That, that's an incredibly uh, different viewpoint to the mainstream way we think of ourselves as paying taxes, which then enable the government to spend. And that's, uh, that becomes a, a weaponized at the political level, of course, that everything's taxpayer funds and blah, blah. Whereas in MMT, the, the, the government spending that's uh, legitimized by this tax liability uh, enables them, us as taxpayers to pay our taxes as well as do other things. And so if you then think about that a little bit further, you you realise as part of an MMT understanding that the currency issuer has no financial constraint. So we're led to believe in mainstream program, economics program, uh, educational programs, and I put inverted commas on the educational, uh, that the government is like a household. So we know our experience as households uh, is that if we want to spend, we have to go to work and earn an income, or we have to uh, run down prior savings, or we have to borrow money to spend more than our income. And we then tend to use that experience to make statements about our knowledge about what the government might do. And, that, and mainstream economics plays upon that uh, this uh, household budget analogy, uh, but that fails at the most elemental level because the government isn't like a household at all. Households use the currency that the government issues uniquely. And so once you understand that uh, uh, the currency issuing government can never be financially constrained, can always buy whatever's for sale in that, in that currency, including all idle labour, which means that any mass unemployment is not a financial uh, issue, it's a political choice. Uh, once you understand that, then you're, then you're prompted to ask questions like, what are the constraints on government spending? If they're not financial, what are the constraints? Mm. And MMT's, MMT, the other big insight that you then get is that not financially constrained, but real resource constrained. And so MMT shifts our whole focus in a understanding government policy, uh, not on how you can pay for it, but whether it's tenable in a real, real resource way. And so we have two situations, simply. We have a situation a where there... 
I think we might actually want to come back to this difference between financial constraints and res- actual resource constraints in just a bit. Um, but before we go any further, I thought it might be interesting if we roll back a little bit uh, to thinking about yeah. where this all came so, from. So, yeah, I, I had um, I had a question which I think you, you sort of started to um, touch on this already, which is, I guess, around the intellectual origins of MMT and what MMT is responding to. So I mean, you, you mentioned this kind of very famous um, household analogy. Um, but yeah, maybe if you could just um, unpick that a little bit, you know, what what puts the the modern in modern monetary theory? What's the what was the kind of, um, I guess, the intellectual origins? Well, I mean, the modern did, as I said, was post 71. And and, and in August 71 was a, a major shift in the way in in, in the monetary system. And what happened was that uh, President Nixon uh, shut the so-called gold window, and that's that's sort of loose jargon for the fact that he abandoned the agree- post-war agreements under the Bretton Woods Agreement, the fixed exchange rate agreements. Uh, Nixon abandoned the part of the that agreement, which which uh, uh, converted US dollars into gold at an at a fixed price. So the whole system was started with price of gold, the US convertibility into that gold. Uh, and then all of the other currencies were linked to the US dollar. So they were ultimately linked to the to the uh, convertibility issue. And that became untenable. The, the fixed exchange rate system was untenable all along. But it became very untenable in the 1960s and particularly in the late 60s with the Americans running huge external deficits uh, and the rest of the world starting to freak out that uh, particularly European countries that those deficits would um, devalue the US dollar and that that, that all of their deficit holdings as a consequence of, uh, of US dollars, as a consequence of running surpluses against America, would uh, lose value. And so they wanted to uh, you know, convert to gold, which was part of the intrinsic part of the agreement. And uh, well, ultimately that became untenable for the US dollar, uh, for the US government. And so they abandoned the whole scheme. Now what that meant, what the, the importance of that in summary is that prior to the abandonment under the fixed exchange rate system, uh, governments were committed to maintaining their exchange rate parities as agreed, and that required the central bank to maintain uh, uh, discipline over how much of the actual currency was circulating, because if there was a downward pressure on a particular national currency as a consequence of external trade deficits, for example, which would create a, an excess supply of that currency into the foreign exchange markets. Well, then what the central bank had to do was uh, drain that excess supply because otherwise they would lose their parity and uh, they would be in breach of the agreement. And what that meant was that uh, uh, um, the Treasury functions of those governments had to basically be sympathetic to the cent- to the need of, of monetary policy to stabilise the exchange rate. So your domestic objectives became compromised. So deficit external deficit countries had to run higher uh, interest rates than were 
uh, suitable for their own economy and they had to run fiscal austerity, uh, cutting deficits, etc., and and therefore faced elevated levels of unemployment. And and uh, uh, so the, the the monetary system was completely compromised. And so governments, ha- if they wanted to spend more than their tax revenue, had to issue debt under that system to make sure that they weren't pushing too much liquidity into the economy, which would compromise the central bank's exchange rate target. Now, once that whole system collapsed in the early 70s and we entered the so-called fiat currency era, where these currencies, as I said before, weren't backed by any valuable commodity, then those constraints on government spending were no longer there. And in that sense, the government became uh, uh, had no financial constraints. It, it was floating ex- its exchange rate. And so all of the econ- mainstream economic analysis that, it, that really is taught now really relates to the pre-71 period. And that's the, that's the big issue that modern monetary theory uh, sought to address, uh, a, a thoroughly modern version of the currency issuer. So could you, I suppose one follow-up question is um, perhaps if you could maybe briefly account for why is it that um, economics as a discipline has been, uh, in your view, why has it been so slow to adapt to the actual conditions of um, finance and money in the aftermath of um, the collapse of Bretton Woods? Is it ideological? Is it... um, is it to do with uh, political interests? Is it to do simply with um, the slow pace of intellectual change? How do you under- how do you understand the slowness or the laggard character of economics in responding to this change? Well, well, all of the above, but all of the above are linked in a certain way. And um, if you go back, if you go back to the origins of the of the dominant economic paradigm the you know the neoclassical origins you you soon you soon understand not that students are ever taught this but any scholar knows this that the origins of uh, neoclassical economic theory uh, which was dominant prior to the great depression uh, were really derived as a way of uh, uh, pushing away the threat of Marxism. So, but, you know, 1848 uh, riots, the Paris Commune somewhat later in 1871 were, were giving the elites uh, uh, rising fears that the uh, understanding of capitalism as a surplus value generating uh accumulation mechanism which was deeply unfair to workers who had to work hours in a day for no pay uh, though, though the the elites were fearing that that was becoming a widespread understanding and that that was going to translate into political action which would obviously threaten their hegemony and so the the neoclassical body of work uh, came up with ideas like we call it marginal productivity theory that's taught to students. And that's a, a body of work that attempts to explain the income distribution 
which Marx had explained through surplus value, uh, uh, neoclassical theory explained it in terms of marginal products and uh, in short it claimed that every input into production got back exactly what it what it contributed in which case it it was substantiating a technocratic concept marginal products and and income returns uh, embedding that within a, a theory of justice, of fairness, that that's that was meant to uh, allay the concerns of uh, workers, and so mainstream economic theory was was always ideological. It was always in defence of the the uh, of capital and the elites that uh, fed off the power of capital. Now that was challenged in the 1930s by the work of Keynes. M Marx had already understood most of the things that Keynes uh, came up with, but Keynes uh, was English gentry, of course, and uh, ca uh, came up with a way of, under of explaining the, the, the deep problems of capitalism and challenged the main propositions of neoclassical thinking. And for a time after the war, the, 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 the war, Second World War taught taught us that governments could, you know, basically the prosecution of Second World War ended the Great Depression. And uh, we learned that uh, using fiscal policy uh, uh, in a, an appropriate way to, to stabilise the fluctuations in non-government spending would uh, uh, maintain full employment. And, uh, you know, this was the period where governments were intervening, were uh, reducing income inequality, were allowing real wages to grow in proportion to productivity, were maintaining strong employment and essentially full employment, and a strong welfare uh, provision, a state with, through public infrastructure and public programs that allowed a, a, a significant but not catastrophic for capitalism a significant redistribution of income. Now, over the 30 or 40 years of that uh, period, the the capital fought back, and uh, that you know, we, by the end of the 60s, there were all the debates about profit squeeze and all of this, and uh, threats of capital strikes, and uh, uh, you know, the 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 elites never liked the social democratic system, and never liked that period. And um, the, 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 the dislocation that occurred in the early 70s is a consequence of the OPEC oil crisis, which is when the, um, the, the Saudis and, uh, retaliated against Israel over the Yom Kippur war to push up you know, price, oil prices dramatically, which really caused a terrible dislocation in oil-dependent importing countries, that gave the elites the chance to seize the economic agenda again and really restore the body of work that Keynes had destroyed in the 1930s as, as legitimacy, as being the legitimate uh, economic paradigm. So, th so it was all ideological. And of course, ideologies uh, then get uh, caught up in what, what we call groupthink, uh, pattern behaviour in the groups. The, you know, the, the academy has a massive vested interest to resist any change 
And uh, so paradigms, dominant paradigms, change very slowly. And uh, Max Planck said at one stage that uh, paradigms change one funeral at a time. <laughs> and, he was, and he was referring to the fact that uh, uh, the, the old professors of the academy have to die off before yeah. they resist, resist the new bodies of work. And, you know, Imre Lakatosh said in the early 70s, he, he used the term degenerative paradigms. And these are paradigms that have lost all empirical traction. All, all, uh, you know, mainstream economics can't explain hardly anything about the the real world, but they hang on through denial, through control of promotional and appointment processes, through control of research funding and uh, res- and peer reviewed uh, publication processes, and they hang on that way. And eventually, the empirical dissonance becomes so great that there's the shift occurs and i think uh you know i've just been in europe talking and uh some of my talks have been about the 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 way in which the paradigm's starting to shift now as this empirical dissonance gets too large as the uh we've now got an anti-establishment revolt going on all around the world and that's just an expression of uh people realizing that the system that they were told would generate untold wealth for them down to trickle down to the bottom levels is failing them dramatically in a number of different ways. And uh, so it's it's all of those things you said, but it starts with the, the causal link is it starts with the ideology and the ideology is to defend the capital and the dominance of capital in the distribution system. So when you, you've mentioned about the, you've discussed the household analogy and its pernicious effect on misconstruing the way in which economies work and the way in which finance works. You've talked about the origins of um, MMT in um, the disintegration of the Bretton Woods system in the early 1970s and the oil shock and how this was used to introduce um, to intru- to introduce uh, particular sets of ideas and to dissolve the social democratic consensus. Um, and you've also mentioned paradigms. And so I was wondering, I suppose, if you could maybe summarize if just briefly, what you th- what are the key differences with the may with other major approaches um, on money on money and finance in modern economic thought? Um, what how would you theoretically differentiate MMT? And I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know if um, if you think in these terms, but perhaps um, I know that many of our listeners will think in terms of neoliberalism as, say, the dominant uh, economic framework, or that has been the dominant economic framework for a long time. Um, and I, I was wondering, perhaps, if you could just uh, draw out a few pointers as to what the major differences are, or if there are any significant differences, say, between. MMT understanding of finance and say a neoliberal approach to currency and finance. If there's anything that goes beyond, like you say, the um, the point about governments being the uh, major uh, controllers of fiat money. Well, I, I I like to use Japan as an example. I've done a lot of work studying Japan, and and Japan in a way pushes the extremes of economic policy and the economic parameters so if if the mainstream predictions were correct well then japan would have because of the way it's 
push policy to the you know to the out out to the outer limits. Um, uh, Japan should sh show show up quite well, and if you think about Japan, it has been running. Uh, it had a major commercial property collapse in the early nineties, and it's since been running fiscal deficits, so that's spending greater than taxation, uh, consistently since then. And sometimes those uh, deficits are beyond 10% of GDP, which historically is quite large. If you think about the European fiscal rules of 3% GDP is the maximum, or then 10% is more than three times that. And it's uh, been, um, its central bank has been buying uh, significant portions of government debt uh, and now holds about 43 or 44% of all government debt and in the last five to six years has basically bought all the government debt and it buys it on secondary markets once it's been issued. Um, and if you think about uh, 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 those things, what would I and and obviously the uh, the consistent deficits have led to Japan uh, having the largest public debt ratio, so it's up around 245% of GDP gross. And uh, so if you think about what a what a student, and I've done this in classes by the way, what a student doing mainstream economics would say about that. Well, they would, they would predict the following, and they do, and the mainstream economists have consistently done this, that the increasing deficits would, uh, would ultimately lead to rising bond yields. Why? Because they have a notion that uh, um, there's a finite supply of saving. This is this classical loanable funds theory, and that... Uh, uh, if the government uh, competes for that finite savings, then it dri comp the competition drives up interest rates. And uh, also the high consist continuous deficits and the large public debt uh, uh, increases the in the bond investors' perceptions, increases the risk of insolvency. Uh, and so they demand higher yields in the bond auctions. And uh, the, the massive buying of uh, government debt, which the mainstream would buy the central bank, Bank of Japan, which the, which the mainstream theory says is printing money, uh, they would predict accelerating inflation. And that's what they've been predicting for 30 years. Now, if you could look at the reality, uh, uh, there's Japan has been fighting deflation, not inflation. So it's very low inflation, if not negative. Uh, um, Short-term interest rates set by the Bank of Japan are, have been zero or thereabouts for several decades. And bond yields are falling, if not negative, at 10-year at, at and 20-year intervals. And uh, a statistic I quote to the financial markets when I'm giving them workshops is that very soon the overall interest servicing burden of the Japanese government for its debt 
will become negative. It's got 245% public debt percentage of GDP, and very soon its overall interest servicing burden on that debt will become negative. And that's because as the old debt matures, uh, the new debt is being issued at negative interest rates, negative yields. Now, no mainstream theor theory can explain any of those things. And uh, so the point of differentiation of mon modern monetary theory is that we can explain all of those things. Uh, we can explain the fact that uh, bond yields are negative. Uh, we can explain the fact that the quantitative easing, the buying of government bonds by the central bank uh, and the build-up of massive uh, bond holdings on central bank asset uh, balance sheets on their asset side will never be inflationary, uh, uh, inevitably, uh, and we can explain why uh, interest rates are negative. So some of the reasons for all of those things are that the banking system isn't the way in which it's taught in mainstream programs as a, as a uh, supply-constrained uh, sector where the banks basically sit there waiting for deposits to come in and then uh, the, when the deposits come in, the banks can make loans. It's exactly the opposite. It's a demand-determined system where banks uh, vigorously look for borrowers and uh, uh, when a creditworthy borrower comes in, uh, a loan is created and a deposit is immediately created without any reserves being required at that point. And so that, that helps to understand why when governments run deficits and issue debt, uh, which they don't have to issue anyway, but uh, that's just convention, uh, that doesn't drive up interest rates. It actually creates downward pressure on interest rates. And that's because there's there's no crowding out in this system, in our modern system, because the banks can create loans whenever they like. And just interrupt. I mean, I think the sort of lay listener might hear this and think, okay, well, that deals, I guess, with the question of inflation and explains Japan. But I mean, to stick with the Japanese example, would uh, an MMT advocate? Uh, see Japan as a model? I mean, from looking at it from the outside, they would go, well, you know, Japan, um, you know, has this all this burden of debt. Okay, maybe it, it, the um, servicing of that debt is now not so onerous. But, uh, you know, Japan's growth rate, Japan's been fairly stagnant. Uh, you know, is this the future for everyone else? Uh, is Japan the future of advanced economies? Um, how, would, how would you respond to that? Well, I'm only, J Japan you've got to differentiate between the way in which the Japanese government, the, the policy initiatives that it actually pursues. So then that's the ideology question and uh, differentiate that from the actual mechanics of its monetary system. And I'm commenting previously on the mechanics of its monetary system. And the reason Japan's a good example to differentiate the failure of mainstream from the insights of modern monetary theory is because it's pushed its policy aggregates to extremes. It has large continuous deficits typically, it has large public debt, 
and it has a central bank that's buying large proportions of government debt. Uh, and, and they're the sort of triggers, the fear triggers that mainstream economics uses to say that deficits will be terrible, that interest rates will rise, that taxes will have to rise, uh, and that inflation will rise. So, so what Jap Japan demonstrates is that none of those things happen when you push mm. those policy aggregates to extreme. Now, whether, uh, whether you hold out the actual policy structures that the Japanese government implements uh, and, the, and the, the ideological values that it imposes uh, as a model depends upon your subjective realities. And uh, uh, I think Japan has some good aspects and it has some uh, things that I don't support, particularly with respect to climate change. But uh, uh, the, the slow growth of Japan is also, you know, we talk about lost decades and, oh, we don't want to have a lost decade. But Japan has... Uh, has relatively stable growth, interrupted by uh, huge natural disasters like the typhoon and the, the tsunami. But, it, but independent of those things, it has relatively stable low growth, but then it has a very, uh, has quite an older population. And it also has very, it also has very limited land area and so people live in much smaller houses than, say, we live in Australia and uh, smaller even than Britain. Now, then you think about uh, uh, that reality and then you think, say to yourself, well, consumption growth probably can't be as strong in Japan as it is in Australia because we can't cram as much stuff into our apartments in Japan as we can in our big houses in Australia. And so savings is higher in Japan than it is in Australia, for example. And um, if you think about what really matters to people, well, then what really matters is uh, uh, good public services. Japan has excellent public services, good transport, good health, very good education, uh, job, jobs availability and uh, security of employment. Uh, Japan historically has uh, good security of employment, good pay, and has has very low unemployment. So even in the when it went through the biggest commercial property crash in history, it still was able to keep unemployment very low. And so yeah, it has slow growth at, uh, and all of that, but it has uh, per, it has outcomes that I think uh, a progressive person would see as being. Uh, uh, desirable relative to the way in which neoliberalism has ravaged uh, the Western countries. So I think this this segues really nicely onto. Um, I guess in this podcast we always try and take a, a, a global view, and one question which we had was. I guess around the the political salience of MMT at the moment, the the AOC factor, um, you might put it. I think this might be um, the the person who, through whom many of particularly our American listeners have heard of of MMT. Um, you know, how would you do? You think MMT is having a moment in the past um, couple of years? Do you think that there's um, there's some some sort of likelihood that we could see? 
um, it really kept sort of catching fire politically. I guess how do you how do you see the the political salience of MMT at the time um, at this point in time? Well, if you look at uh, Google Trends, clearly what you've just said is correct. Uh, we, we've been working on. Um, we started this project in the mid-90s and uh, it's only relatively recently that it's taken off. Uh, but it's it's much more than just an AIC factor, even though that was a stimulus. Uh, if you think about the, the growth of what you call neoliberal macroeconomics, the mainstream uh, um, in the post-OPEC oil crisis period in the 70s, uh, which basically killed off the Keynesian social democratic consensus that had dominated mm -hmm. for th three or more decades. If you think about what the heterodox progressive economists were doing at the time, uh, they, they, in my view, had essentially become uh, diverted in, our, in their research programs by postmodernism, and uh, and this was the era of deconstruction and uh, the abandonment of uh, economic class analysis by the left and uh, the the rise of identity class analysis. So your location in society was not whether you were a worker or an owner of capital, but you, whether you were a male or a female or black or white or whatever. Uh, what, depending on your sexuality and, and all of these important issues, but uh, really diverted the attention of heterodox economists away from the main game, which was macroeconomics. And so for many years, neoliberalism, the dominant macroeconomics, uh, has ruled even though, as I said earlier, this empirical dissonance has been rising and it's clear that, it's, that it doesn't provide a, an explanation for the system and the real world. And part of that uh, abandonment of the macroeconomic space among, among left politicians uh, uh, who are guided by heterodox thinkers uh, has been to essentially buy this line uh, the mainstream line that the government is financially constrained, that uh, global capital markets uh, can uh, shut down a government that does anything progressive. And you see this in right across the world. Uh, you know, in, in Britain, the, the fiscal credibility rule that the Labor Party took into the last election with disastrous consequences is an is a expression of this surrender to uh, neoliberal financial thinking and the constraints that it imposes upon uh, currency issuing governments. So there really has been no contest. And I think mm. what's happened is that as, as that neoliberal consensus is starting to break down and uh, the paradigm shift has been driven by the anti-establishment revolt, so that's just citizens annoyed and uh, yellow vests and uh, Brexit and uh, Trump and all of the manifestations of that, the massive decline of uh, social democratic political, traditional political voices, Labor Party in Australia, the Labor Party in Britain, 
and uh, Democrats in the US and the Social Democratic and Socialist parties in Europe. And also the, the, uh, the interesting thing is that financial markets are now rebelling because, you know, I talk to the big investment banks and pension funds quite a lot and do workshops for them. And they're now saying that their business model is extremely compromised by the austerity, uh, neoliberal austerity bias because uh, monetary policy has been pushed to extremes, negative interest rates, for example, and they can't make enough uh, money off their assets to fund their liabilities, particularly the pension and insurance funds. And what the, uh, the big investment banks want uh, is a return to fiscal policy so that they can leverage investment uh, opportunities off the big public infrastructure projects, off, off uh, households enjoying better income growth uh, and strong employment and all the rest of it. So uh, you're seeing a whole series of disparate forces uh, driving a paradigm shift and a failure and a recognition that the mainstream economics has failed. That's, that's now underway. And what you're seeing is, uh, therefore, uh, an, uh, you know, central bankers are calling for a renewed use of fiscal policy and an abandonment of the fiscal austerity yeah. because they know, they know that monetary policy has been pushed to the limits and is failing to do what the governments thought that it would do, create more inflation, the lower interest rates would create more business investment and all the rest right. of things that the mainstream, the mainstream economists told them would happen that so, hasn't happened. Yeah, sorry so, to so, interrupt. Uh, I, I, because no, I think you you brought us uh, sort of halfway there. I wanted to ask specifically about concrete policy proposals. Um, I mean, you said at the beginning that MMT is apolitical, but it's obviously often been associated with policies such as the Guaranteed Jobs Program. Could you tell us a little bit about how that fits and whether something like a guaranteed jobs program is in any way necessarily linked to MMT or whether the the ideas of MMT necessarily lead to any sort of proposals um, leading to you know the, the use of monetary policy for um, for t towards production basically. Well, uh, MMT prioritizes use of fiscal policy, not monetary policy. Yeah, that was uh, and that's a spoke, big, yeah. That's a big paradigm. That's part of the big paradigm shift that uh, only MMT has advocated uh, the prioritisation of fiscal policy over monetary policy. And that's one of the reasons why MMT is now becoming very attractive and very discussed in the media because we've filled that gap that was left by the heterodox economists uh, going down the identity route and, uh, and basically becoming neoliberals at the macroeconomic level. Uh, the idea of a job guarantee is intrinsic to modern monetary theory. And this was uh, work that I began in, in 1978 and then Warren Mosler uh, independently had come up with the idea in the early 90s. And uh, when I say that uh, MMT has no policies, uh, that often uh, confuses people because the job guarantee seems like a policy to them. And uh, the, the, the reason why that causes, why that shouldn't be confusing but is, is that really I see and uh, Warren and I always saw, Warren Mosler and I always saw 
at the foundational start of MMT, we always saw the job guarantee as being a stability framework, and it was not not it was it was really the an inevitable uh, uh, choice between using unemployment to control inflation or to use employment to control inflation. So when I talk about stability, we're talking about uh, price stability. Right. And uh, so um, the job guarantee is a is what I call an employment buffer stock. It's a it, it's an unconditional offer of a job to anyone who wants it at a minimum wage. And, and the minimum wage is a socially inclusive minimum wage, not a poverty level minimum wage. And uh, that's juxtaposed against the way in which the mainstream control inflation through using unemployment. And uh, unemployment used to be a policy target in the Keynesian period. It's now a policy tool. So uh, if you push up unemployment, you know that that disciplines wage demands from uh, workers and it also suppresses the ability of firms to push up margins, uh, price margins. And so if there's an inflationary pressure, unemployment will ultimately uh, discipline it, but, but at great cost and, and massive loss of, uh, of income and all of the associated personal and family pathologies that accompany unemployment. And if uh, the the one thing that unites all macroeconomists is this, is the, is the claim that we want to have efficient use of all the productive resources, which means that we don't want to have wasted resources. And uh, so there's a sort of a, a, a contradiction and an irony in the mainstream approach. They use mass unemployment to discipline inflation, but then claim that they want to, they believe in efficiency. Well, the two don't add up, they can't possibly. And so as an inevitable uh, uh, outcome of wanting to not waste any resources, including labour resources, Warren and I believe that the only way in which you could maintain price stability and not waste resources was to have a employment buffer stock. Uh, and uh, uh, that's that's the um, evolution of the job guarantee. I could go; it goes deeper than that in terms of Phillips curve literature. So it's not really a, a policy choice. It's it's uh, it's a policy, sure, but it's uh, it's an it's an integral logical outcome of the need to not waste resources but maintain price stability. So to have full employment and price stability, the only way you can do that in a monetary system is to have a job guarantee. And uh, uh, that's that's the context in which a policy is integral to MMT, but it's the only policy that's integral to MMT. All the rest of the policies that you might want to dream up are a reflection of your ideological position and uh, are not dictated one way or another by MMT. As a progressive, I want big public infrastructure, good public education, good public health, uh, good good uh, security, income security, good welfare provision, and good climate change uh, uh, policy interventions. And uh, what MMT tells me is a very small part of that, but an incredibly important part of it, is that there's no financial constraint on the government providing those things. The only constraints are the real resources that are required to to implement those things. 
whereas a right winger could could would be horrified by most of those things, and uh, could could tolerate ten percent unemployment as a, an expression of their desire to be, uh, rebalance the bargaining power towards capital. But they would have the same understanding of the of the monetary system as I would have. Uh huh. Okay. So if you were if thinking about the um, the crumbling of the neoliberal paradigm, as you put it, um, the boost that um, MNT has had in recent years, um, the greater interest it's drawing, and the successes that you and Thomas and um, your other um, collaborators and allies have had in um, promoting MNT, how would you rate your chances um, deeper into the century? in terms of MMT gaining greater policy traction, if you had to put a bet on where MMT might be, say, by 2050, do you think it will be taken up by governments as part of their understanding of how finance works, or are you more pessimistic? Um, I don't gamble, so I'm not going to place a bet. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the, the era of fiscal dominance is upon us and it's emerging and it's the next sustained era of policy ideology uh, that's that's beyond question i think it's the the previous neoliberal era of monetary policy dominance and fiscal austerity and bias towards austerity is coming to an end it's failed uh, it doesn't serve the interests of ordinary citizens uh, central bankers don't like it, uh, and the top end of town, the financial markets, don't like it. So all of those forces are coming together in different ways to express the same message. So that's happening. Uh, whenever there's a paradigm shift underway, you get you get different reactions within the dominant paradigm. So you get outright hostility from the real hardcore and that's Max Planck's one funeral at a time. They've got to basically be eliminated from the, the debate through retirement and death and what have you. But you also get this group who who want to be on the right side of history, uh, but also want to maintain their credibility as senior members of the old paradigm. And uh, they start eating into what the emerging paradigm is saying and, and uh, the parameters of that and try to recapture them back into the old paradigm. So, you know, in economics, we saw the famous capture of uh, Keynes's ideas in the late 1930s by what became known as the neoclassical synthesis. And this was an idea, this was a way in which the old guard could preserve their reputations and position in the academy and the profession uh, uh, by going with the new ideas, but eliminating all of the things that they found offensive about them. And I think you're seeing that now. You're seeing some of the mainstream economists and uh, Olivia Blanchard and, uh, uh, dare I say, Paul Krugman and uh, characters like this who, who want to be seen as uh, knowing everything always and being on top of the game, despite the fact that their past record tells you that they didn't didn't 
extol the virtues of fiscal policy as they are starting to now. And so they're driving the debate as well, because they're now saying, oh, yeah, I mean, we've got Japan's got to learn to love fiscal deficits. That's Olivia Blanchard, for example. And so what happens out of that is is uh, is uncertain because uh, that resistance to acknowledging the fact that really only the modern monetary economists, uh, myself and my colleagues, we're really the only ones that have built a body of work that's consistent with sustainable fiscal dominance. And the mainstream economics is incapable at core of of uh, being being the being the dominant voice in a in a fiscally dominant uh, world, uh, but they've got the power and we don't at the moment. And so what will transpire is uncertain. What we'll know in t- by 2050 is that we we will have gone through a period of fiscal dominance. How long it lasts, who knows. Uh, and what we'll know is that one school of thought, uh, one framework, uh, predicted that, uh, provided the essential tools for that in the academy and in the literature, and that's modern monetary theory. And a whole lot of uh, rats that were deserting the sinking ship uh, decided to try to co-opt that and uh, make it their own and say we knew it all along. And that'll be these mainstream uh, deviants who are uh, uh, are leaving, the, uh, trying to span the paradigm shift to preserve their own uh, authority and their own reputations, which are in tatters. All right, excellent. That is incredibly useful for thinking through what's coming over the hill in, in political economy. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Bill. I was okay. really that was really useful, Bill, and I think our um, I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it because uh, they will be excited to hear that we've got you on. And they'll be interested to hear what you have to say. And I, it was helpful for me, certainly, in clarifying some of the points of MMT and some of the, the issue around um, your talking through Japan was also um, mm. very useful as well. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I think it was, yeah, it was very good. We got beyond the one sentence, uh, an unfair one sentence <laughs> summary because, uh, yeah, otherwise it, one, it would have been a very short episode. Um, but yeah, I think particularly some of the the examples and some of the points of differentiation and the history as well. I think I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. So, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, good on you. Thank you.